high-stakes NFBC strategy, player debates, your mailbag questions, and our favorite fantasy baseball podcast to listen to. That's all coming up next with Jenny Butler on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangraphs. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always is Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good, and great news for the Mets. The Mets are retiring Keith Hernandez's number, number 17, all-time great for the Mets, one of the best defensive first basemen of all time. How excited are you, Ruvain? I'm very excited because I was a big fan of his growing up. I loved watching him play defense he was a great defensive player he was a great hitter he was great on Seinfeld the only thing only issue I had is that the Cardinals put him in their Hall of Fame before the Mets did yeah that's that's a little bit uh uh get some unrest thinking about that but at least we're we're getting there uh and we'll, we'll be there this year hopefully the labor disputes will settle really soon and we can get to playing baseball on time I don't know what, what probability do you have for the season starting on time Ruvain I think they have to have some sort of basic agreement by February 1st. Otherwise, it's going to start late because pitchers and tech catchers usually report the second week in February. Otherwise, we're going to have a problem. I'm going to predict it'll start two weeks late. Um, you know, if you're a business person, that you know, you want to get the most out of it and both sides are going to push it till the very end and maybe they'll cut into spring training and they'll delay maybe a week or two. I don't know. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully not. But we're here anyways uh, talking fantasy and helping everyone get settled and preparing for your 2022 drafts. And we have a great episode tonight. We have a fantastic high-stakes player, plays in the NFBC. She just wrote an article for the FTN Draft Guide. A warm beat-the-shift welcome to the show. Jenny Butler, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. How are you guys doing? Oh, fantastic. Doing great. Yeah, and uh, we did see you uh, out in Arizona. You have a good time there at first pitch? I had a great time there. I was actually, I think, the best time I had there because I did more socializing, which I would highly recommend to anybody who goes. It can be a little bit intimidating sometimes to talk to people that, you know, you're hearing on podcasts and you're reading their articles, but um, everybody's so super friendly. So, you know, just, just bite the bullet and talk to people, and, and you'll be happy that you did. Absolutely. You know, we always ask people what the best part of the trip was, but – what was the worst part of the trip for you? And this is directed at Ruvain. <laughs> um, you, you know what I'm talking me? about, Ruvain. Um, it's possible that when we were driving to see Brett Beatty in in, a, in an Arizona Fall game, we got a flat tire in the middle of the desert. Yeah, that yeah. was a lot of fun. Oh, no. Yeah, I don't think we told this story on air yet, but uh, Ruvain and I went to one of the games. We're all excited to go, and we, we car rental, we had it, and we are, I'd say, about five minutes from the actual ballpark. Less, maybe 10 minutes. less, 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 yes, less. Um, and all of a sudden, psh, it popped. You know, earlier in the day, the tire pressure settled a bit low. Eh, maybe it's just the morning, but, yeah, it had a flat, and we had to drive all the way back to the airport, get a new uh, car, and we missed the game. That was definitely a crappy day there. And and being on the side of the road for, like, three, four hours, and there are, like, fire ants for the side of the road or in the middle of the Arizona desert. <laughs> I, I, listen, it was a good thing I decided to bring some food with us. Otherwise, we would have been in the middle of the desert with nothing. <laughs> 
That's yeah. terrible. That's that's worse than my worst story. My first year that I went, you know, the normally they did it earlier this year, but normally it's timed so that the last night of the conference is the Fall Stars game. So you get to see all the All-Stars of the Arizona Fall League. And the first year that we went, I somehow made a mistake and looked and thought that the game was at a different stadium than it was. So I drove us oh, to no. the wrong stadium oh. and then realized that the real stadium that I needed to get to was like 45 minutes away. And we oh. were getting there just as the game was starting. So we actually just like bagged the whole thing and went to dinner and just oh. said too bad because I, w- I didn't want to drive 45 minutes out of the way to go to the right stadium. But I was so oh. mad at myself. Oh, man. Well, I think our story beats yours because we it does. Out it the- absolutely just, just beats a that. Bit. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And we didn't want to stay in the car because I don't know. You get hit in the side of the road. Everyone's going eighty miles an hour. You Plus, it was, it was like eighty degrees outside and sun with no clouds. I mean, yeah, it was a little nuts. Yeah. It gets well, uh, onto the show. Uh, we jump right into it uh, in our strategy section tonight. We're going to talk about the NFBC because that's uh, what Jenny has expertise in. We're going to talk about how to play high stakes, uh, the differences between high stakes and home leagues, and so on and so forth. So, you know, before we start, could you just explain to us, um, Jenny, what is the NFBC? Who is it for? How you personally got into it? And uh, how do you recommend anybody else to get into it? Yeah, um, the NFBC is, you know, the National Fantasy Baseball Championships. Um, It's I think it's just become a place where some of the highest stakes players and some of the best players like to sort of congregate. Um, It's a really well-run site. It's a really well-run platform for leagues. And I think everybody has just preferred it. And you know that you're getting good competition there. And so, you know, Greg and Tom do a great job and, you know, it's, they're a trustworthy site. So I think that it's, it's really been good for everyone. And also they do the, the live events, which I, for me personally is a huge draw to it for me. Um, you know, I started in the NFBC in 2013 overall playing some like online championships and some cut lines and things like that. And that's really how I would recommend people getting into it. I mean, for the most part, you probably need to build your bankroll Um, unless you just have a lot of money right off the bat. So, you know, I would recommend just getting in, you know, some of the lower price leagues and, you know, building your bankroll, trying to win that way, and then sort of working your way up to the main event and some of the, there are even higher stakes leagues than that. But the other thing I would say is that if you get a chance, if you can work your way up to it and, and you have the means to do it, to make it out to one of the live drafts, either in New York, Chicago, and my personal favorite is Las Vegas. It's always during um, March Madness, so it's it's a fun time all around. And um, the, everybody there, it's, it's a huge event. You know, on Saturday morning, the big Saturday morning draft has maybe seven to ten different leagues drafting all at the same time in a big room and it's just a it's an experience that you should try and experience once if you can absolutely um i will be there on friday at, in the new york one uh and i'll probably hang around it's tat wars weekend uh uh this year hopefully it's all in person i'll be around hanging out all through the weekend so if you do come to new york you'll get to see me if you and, and ruvain too will be there for most of it i think yeah, and, we've, uh, we've been we've been doing that Friday morning draft in New York for a couple of years now, and a lot of those people they keep coming back, and they're almost like family because we know these people. They're coming back to the same time, same time for the draft, same room, same people. It's just a blast. You, you get to know other people, and you get to um, network. It's great. Yeah, it's a, it becomes almost like a home league that way. You know that you get to be close with the people in it, and just in general, I try to draft live as much as I possibly can. 
Oh, absolutely. And if you go to Vegas, you'll uh, you'll see Jenny. So head out to there one of go. those. Um, you know, for a first-time player, though, it could be daunting. You're going to see some very accomplished people, people who've earned a lot of money, maybe some experts, analysts. What kinds of tools uh, would you recommend for a first-time player getting into it? Well, for me, you know, I think that the best way to do it, you know, I, I personally don't do a lot of player analysis myself. I, I spent, you know, I started in the main event in 2017 and I spent the off seasons in 2018, 19, and then the long off season in 20, trying to become a better scout of players, a better, you know, doing player analysis on my own. And I just decided that that is not a good use of my time, a good use of my resources. So I just start with a good basic set of projections and, you know, not to kiss up to the host, but, you know, I use ATC a lot and I think that it's a great one for, because it is, you know, combines a bunch of different projections and, you know, you know how to combine them in the appropriate way instead of just doing like a straight average. So I think that something like that is a great way to, you know, start, you know, you, then you have the stats in front of you. And you can use um, tools like, you know, the SGP or something like that to condense those projections into a single value for a player. You can use um, SGP is outlined a lot in the process by Jeff Zimmerman and Tanner Bell. And then Tanner Bell also has his website, um, Smart Fantasy Baseball, where he um, has a tool there, an Excel tool, where you can input the settings for your own personal league and he will it will calculate for you the SGP for your league. So that means that you know you can put a value on each player based on whatever set of projections you want to import into it. And then you know I once I have that I just sort of spend some time looking through the player pool. So you know there's there are resources for Fab you know at the Athletic and FTN. But in general you know just get that set of projections, compare players based on those projections, and you'll be in a good place. Yeah, couldn't agree more with uh, with that strategy. We'll talk a little bit more in depth about all of that uh, later in the show. Um, you know, for somebody who's been playing in home leagues all their life, um, what are the biggest differences, you would say, uh, in terms of the gameplay itself from going to a home league versus these high-money leagues? Well, for me, my home league is very unusual. It's a... It's a hybrid auction and snake draft you know only eight rounds of auctions so I, i'm not sure what most people's home leagues are like but um, my home league was always very deep so it wasn't a hard to for me for me to get used to the deeper player pools on nfbc but um you know and i think if you're going coming from espn or yahoo that you might not be used to the deeper player pool so you might need to look a little bit deeper into the later players in the draft but the only other th the thing that I would say is, you know, in, in NFBC, people are investing a lot of money, so they stay involved longer into the season for the most part. Um, you know, in your home leagues, you know, in my home league at least, you know, people kind of in the later parts of the standings tend to sort of drop off as the season goes on and they aren't making pickups and things like that. But in NFBC, they are mostly picking up through the end of the year. And when you're doing your fab pickups, you need to have a lot of conditional pickups because people are putting in a, a lot of different bids and you might end up with the third, fourth or fifth guy on your fab list as compared to, you know, my home league where I can only just put in, you know, one or two uh, bids and get the guys that I want. Right. Ruvain, I mean, you, you play in both. So what can you tell? 
Uh, well, you have to obviously what what, um, what Jenny said about the player pool. That's the big thing. You have to know a whole bunch of players, especially in a 15 team league. There are not a lot of home leagues that have a 15 team league, so you have to know a lot more players. I think players in NFPC are a little bit more aggressive when it comes to drafting, when it comes to the auction, when it comes to fab. They are so much more aggressive, and you have to watch out because they're going to be sharks. If if you're looking around the room and you think that you're the one who's the dead money, then you're probably the dead money you, in, in, an NFBC, in an NFBC league. You, you can't be a Tim, but that's the whole thing. You can't be intimidated by it because you're all starting with the same amount of money, all starting with the same amount of slots to fill, and it's a matter of just being confident and, and having the guts to pick the players that you want. That's another thing, though. When it comes to the home leagues, the home leagues, you have a good idea of who's going to take who. You have, you, after a couple of years in home leagues, you get a trend of who, which, which, player, which, which players in each league like which team and, and so forth and stuff like that when it comes to nfbc especially if you're doing it online you have no clue who's going to take who you're going to whose people are going to take so people are going to be a lot more aggressive so Ariel, you mentioned about looking for tools the nfbc adp tracker is on and it's live right now and if you keep track of that you'll be able to have a good idea of when your players are going and it gives you a better idea of how to track those players yeah no that's a good point um i mean what we do is we take the atc projections Compare them to the ADP, and that's where you can see the biggest differences. Uh, for me, I think the biggest difference that I've noticed is shrewdness on the waiver wire. I think it's not really the draft. I think it's more the waiver wire, that um, the right number, uh, they always bid the right number. They they pounce on players before they're anybody. They take closers before they even become closers. Um, they look at the schedule, who's got a really good schedule, what, who, what pitcher has been pitching badly, but really – is is better according to his some of his uh, peripheral metrics. Uh, just the shrewdness on the waiver wire to me is the better thing, and better timing of dropping and adding players. I think that people in home leagues do don't do as good a job as the high stakes players in when to get rid of a player, when to pick up a player. I think that they're they're that's the biggest difference for me. Um, what would you say? We we asked this last week to uh, to Frank Stample on the show as well, um, but. What do you think are the biggest gameplay strategy differences between standalone leagues and leagues with an overall prize? Just because it's a high-money league doesn't mean there's an overall. But uh, in the NFBC, for example, in the main event, there's a number of individual leagues. But then they, you take the whole group, and whoever is the top of the total league, you know, in totality, gets an even bigger prize. And they give some kind of ridiculous big hundred two hundred thousand dollar prize uh, for some of these what do you think the biggest difference is between the standalone and leagues with an overall component well i th i think that i might give a different answer to this and probably a lot of people do i hear a lot of people saying you know somebody like an adalberto mondesi for instance is a better bet in a late in a league with an overall prize because you're going for upside you want upside you want to get because if you're going to win you need upside and I don't really believe that. So, you know, for example, if you draft Mondesi and he stays healthy, he could win you your league. But there are 43 leagues. So there are 43 people that have Adalberto Mondesi on their team. And if he wins all those people their leagues, you're maybe in the top 43 somewhere. And the top 43 don't get paid. The top 20 get paid. So for me, I, I feel like I'm a little bit more risk averse in an overall just because I want to build a solid team from top to bottom. I want to, you know, earn a little bit of profit on every pick and it will add up top to bottom rather than going for, 
you know, a shot in the dark, an upside pick, you know, a rookie that may or may not come up like a Bobby Witt, somebody like that. You know, that's that's the way I approach it. And I think that, you know, if you look at a lot of the teams that finish in the top, a lot of them don't have these crazy picks. You know, you, you hit on some late guys and everybody's got to hit on some late guys, but they're not taking risks early with those early picks. No, I, I actually agree with that. I think that the key, and I mentioned this last time, is, is category balance. You know, you can't, uh, you know, only get a certain type of stat. But uh, I think you're right in that. Um, I think the risks to take are lower down. I mean, the principle of return on investment, as you said, you want to earn a little bit on each player. The principle of a return on investment is there's two ways, two ways to have a good return on investment. You either have to have a good return or you have to have a low investment. Um, to, to win on Adalberto Mondesi, He's got to beat his draft price. You've got to have an amazing return, and that's a lot harder to do. When you have somebody down low, even if they're risky, you've only invested a small amount. You actually don't need that much of a return because it's such a low investment. So uh, I agree with you on, on that principle there. And with the overall, when there when there is an overall, it's just there's so much – luck involved and when it comes to let's say you you want to you want to do a regular nfbc auction championship and that's what we do and we don't actually look at the overall until let's say july or august because there's just so much luck that goes into it besides all the preparation besides hitting on those players besides getting lucky that you're not getting you know you're getting the guy for that year it is so hard that sometimes it's better just to try to win your satellite league and then looking where you are around june july and then try to be more aggressive and try to attack the overall that way yep um what do you think, Jenny, the value of a multi-eligible position player is in the NFBC? I mean, there are some players who qualify more than one, and the NFBC is known for a shorter bench, or I shouldn't say shorter bench. It has a seven-player bench, but no injured list. And with the whole slew of injuries in the past couple of seasons, uh, you might have players that you might have to keep or want to keep, which makes a shorter bench. Um, what value to you, and how do you use those multi-eligible position players? Yeah, those are that's something that I've drafted a lot since I first started playing in the NFBC, and I think um, other players really came around. People that weren't as big on it came around to it in 2020 with the you know the slew of outages with COVID. So um, I think that it is extremely valuable. You know, for one on one side, when you're setting your lineups on both Monday and Friday, but you're only making pickups once a week. There are times when being able to shuffle players around is the difference between having a full lineup and not. And also, you know, when you're doing fab on Sundays, you know, if you have a player that is, for instance, second and third base eligible, you can move them around. And now you're looking for a player in the, on the waiver wire who can fill both either a corner infield or a middle infield spot. And that just widens the player pool for you so much. And you are really more likely to be able to take the best player available. Agree. Anything to add, Ruby? Yeah, I think the value is more in the weaker positions, meaning if you can get a player who's normally a second baseman, but they also have third base eligibility and third base is kind of weak this year, he's much more valuable just because he has that ability to be able to play third base. And when you're drafting him, you're drafting him as a third baseman, not as a second baseman. Also for your bench, it is invaluable to have these guys who are eligible 
all over the place. Um, there's so many guys now that are doing that. I mean, it's it seems like it's it's only happened a couple of years ago when all these guys started getting eligibility everywhere. But it's I think it started maybe with Ben Zobrist. He was the most notable guy because he was on the Cubs and everyone saw him being used everywhere by Joe Madden when he was on the Cubs. And when people saw all the way, look at this. He's he's outfield eligible. He's second base eligible. He's basically eligible ever except for catcher. A player like that has inval has so much value for your to be on your bench to be able to protect you from injuries and from other bad uh, performances by other players. Well, my heart goes out to Ben Zobris because I remember um, way back he had this he was not doing that great one year and he had this ridiculous ten RBI game or ten RBI day maybe it was a doubleheader and that just was just an amazing day and I didn't have him on my roster and I traded for him literally like the day or two before. And that was his first or second game in the lineup. And all of a sudden, he hits 10 RBIs. So uh, I, I love you, Ben Zobris. I think I won that year. Uh, anyways. Yes, we, we did. Yeah, we did. Oh, right. That, that's, that was our uh, home we were, league. Yes, that's that, was right. a, that was a home league. And I think the guy we traded got injured also. So that also helped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah. But that, that's that's the issue with luck again. You you have to be extremely lucky, especially when it comes to the overalls. Yep, there you go. Um, one thing that is uh, prevalent in the NFBC is something called KDS, which is uh, Kentucky Derby-style selection. That's where um, it does not randomly sign you a draft slot. Uh, you, you, you get the ninth slot. You get the 15th slot. It asks you where you want to pick the order of preference. So you may prefer the 7th slot, you may prefer the ninth slot, and you have to literally pick the, pick the order, 7, 9, 12, 15, 12, 75, whatever it is. Um, what do you do in general, Jenny, and is that going to change for what you're going to do for the 2020 drafts? Yeah, for the most part, I tend to choose um, in the middle. Um, I think it just helps with avoiding runs happening and you missing out on runs. But... Um, most usually what I do, you know, as, as especially main events are approaching, I'll look at the most recent ADP I can get and sort of look through two, three, even four rounds and sort of look at where, because those are the rounds that are really affected by your draft slot. Later on, you can get whoever you want, essentially, if you're willing to jump them a little bit. So, but in the first, you know, three, four rounds, your draft, your draft spot determines a lot of uh, what part of the player pool is available to you. So, um, you know, I'll look at those at those sections and sort of decide where I like the players the most, where I like the selections the most. Um, but I usually try to stay as close to the middle in, you know, whether I want first, middle or late, even if I want an early pick, like in 2022, I think that an early pick would be nice. You know, the first five, six players are really appealing and then it starts to get a little more questionable towards the end. So, you know, I, I want to look at you know, maybe one of those picks, but I'll start from, you know, if I like the first six players, for instance, I'll start my KDS preferences, six, five, four, three, two, one, so that I'm as close to the middle as I can get while still getting, being in the the window of players that I like. Ruben, your preference? Middle, middle, middle. When you're in the middle, you have your choice. You can see what's going on in the room. You can not, you're can you not going to miss any of the runs that go on because you can start them. You can be in the middle of them. You can end them. So being in the middle is great. Plus, you don't have to wait so long in between picks, and you don't have to reach as much when you're in the middle. If, if you're pick one or two, yes, you'll get that Trey Turner, but you have to wait another what 20 pick 20 something picks to get your next pick it's it's just crazy to think that okay look i have a great team i have a great base with trey turner but now i gotta wait and then you know what 
if I don't get a pitcher this in this time around, when it comes to my, my pick in the, in the second and third round, I have to wait to the fifth round to get a pitcher. Do I really want to do that? So and it goes for both, both sides of the wheel. So I think it's middle, middle, middle. Even this year, even though, Jenny, I do agree with you that the top four or five look really good and there's questions in the middle. But still, you have your choice in the middle of who you want to take. Yeah, so I agree with a bunch of points of both of yours. I might disagree a little bit with something you said, Jenny. I'll explain in a minute. Uh, but I, I agree also in general it's going to be the middle. And for a lot of the reasons you, you guys said, uh, talking about avoiding uh, not, uh, uh, not being uh, cast out of runs, right? If there's a closer run and you're at the wheel and, oh, no, I missed that closer run, you certainly want to be a part of that. Uh, so that's one reason. Um, and as you said, Ruvain, I think that – um, when you're in the middle, you don't have to jump as much. I think, Jenny, when, when you said that it matters more for the beginning and not as much for later, um, it does matter a lot for the beginning, but I think it matters a lot later. If you're in the 15th round, for every single if – you're, if you're in the wheel if you're, or if you're at the front wheel, um, if you want somebody, you're going to have to jump a half round more than you would have if you had been in the middle. And on the way back, you have to jump another half round half round more than you would have if you were at the middle. I think you're constantly losing uh, a half a round of value every single time you go. All right. I think that that, you know, you have the ability to, you know, if you're trying to pick players who you think are undervalued, well, you're you're not getting that full value if you have to take them earlier because, well, I got to take them now because I don't have any pick 30 picks. Uh, I think you lose that ability. And for, so for that reason, I think it's a better value proposition. It's also informational. Um, if you're in the middle, it pass, the turn passes you. You get information as to what's gone on. You make one decision. If you're at the wheel, you're getting that same one pass of information, but then you got to make two decisions. And you don't know what's going on in the rest of the round, but you still got to make two decisions from it. So there's a little bit of an informational imbalance, and that could lead to more value in the middle. Um, in general, middle, but I definitely prefer early to late. I think there's a value proposition that the first two, three, four picks, because those values are so high in the first round that you'll get more, maybe $10, $8 more, $5 more, whatever it is, by picking er the first two rather than the late one. So my preference would be 7, 6, 5, 8, 9, 4, 3, 2, maybe 10, 1, you know, that kind of thing where I give more weight to the, the beginning, um, but middle is, is preferred. Do you, do you agree with that, uh, Jenny, or disagree with uh, what I said there? Yeah, no, that's actually a very good point. And you're, you're right. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but you're right that, you know, if you're jumping players, you know, in every round, you're losing that little bit of value in every round. And like I said, my, you know, my goal is always to, to get as much value out of every pick as I possibly can. And picking and picking your KDS also matters when it comes to an auction, also because let's say you you want to for K for auction we want to I would like to be in I know Ariel's also in the middle when it comes to an auction that way we can throw out a player that we want to get a, a feel for the room we want to see exactly how much a certain player will go for so we can see how our plan's going to work out. We can also shape the way a auction is going by drafting a certain person at a certain time. So it it's not only just for the regular draft. This this goes for auctions also. Yeah, some years, though, for auctions, I actually prefer to be at the beginning. Also, uh, if you're in a shallow league in an auction, I'd much prefer the first. Because when you get to the reserve round, where often the reserve round is done in snake, 
you get the first pick. And very often that very first pick is very important. So I actually prefer the beginning uh, of nominations. If nominations are important, I want to do as many of them as more before anybody else as possible. So I actually prefer beginning in general. Um, I, we got a mailbag question from Carlos. He says that, um, you know, the saves and the stolen base conundrum, how much of a premium should we pay for them? And, uh, you know, I think in the NFBC, something that I've noticed is that more than other home leagues, um, starting pitching, saves, and speed are usually pushed up a lot higher than most other leagues. And, you know, the question for you, and we talk a lot on the show about market premium, do you think that one really has to follow that market trend? And if the saves and stolen bases are pushed up, then you really do need to pay the, that market premium for, for those stats or that position? Or do you think maybe they're pushed up way too much that there's maybe a better way to exploit the market um, by maybe using your draft capital more effectively and going for some other positions and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not really going to put an emphasis on that. I'll get some of those stats a little bit later because it's such a ridiculous price. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, for me, I tend to pay up for those. Um, and part of the reason, you know, part of it for me is just that, you know, that is sort of the going rate for what it takes to get a good closer. And it's gone up every year and that stinks. I wish I didn't have to pay it. But, you know, I would also like to walk into a Mercedes dealership and tell them that I'll pay $15,000 for this car and they'll laugh me out of there. You know, it's just, it is what it costs. So... I think that, you know, there there is a limit, obviously. There is a, a return on investment that you may not get. However, I think that the difference between the top tier, for instance, closers and the later closers is fairly significant. So, you know, for instance, you're drafting Hendricks and Hayter and you're getting, you know, hopefully 30 plus saves and you can get 30 plus saves if you hit on a guy later. You know, let's say Mark Melanson may get, you know, almost as many saves. But the thing that you're getting from the top guys, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be Hendricks and Hayter, it could be, you know, the third, fourth, fifth guy, which is sort of the, the area where I like to live. But for instance, you know, Hendricks and Hayter, you're getting maybe 100 strikeouts as opposed to, you know, 50 or 60 from Mark Melanson. You're getting a full run better ERA and, you know, a, a difference of, you know, 0.5 whip. And those are all things they're able to help you in other categories where some of the lesser closers are hurting you in those other categories. And, you know, the same goes for steals. You know, if you're you can get good steals at the start of the draft with from guys who will not hurt you in other categories, whereas later in the draft, you might hit on a rabbit later but they are actively hurting you in some of the other categories. So the overall value of that player decreases. Ruben? Stolen bases, you have to pay the market premium. I mean, that's that's what it's going for. If you don't want a guy with so many warts, you have to pay the market premium for stolen bases. Saves, if you want to get that top closer and you want to have the guy with the, with the strike as a goal along with it, that's fine. But I think when it comes to saves, it's much more of quantity over quality, especially if you're just going to be looking, you know, going over the waiver wire anyway and getting a whole bunch of people and, and getting this guy who hopefully will be, will be a closer, this guy will hopefully be, hopefully be a closer on the waiver wire. Why should you always pay a premium? If, if you get one top closer, let's say you get Kenley Jansen and Kenley Jansen is not who he is, meaning he starts to have a decline and, and you're taking Kenley Jansen as your fourth or as a number fourth or fifth closer overall. 
Do you really want to do that? Do you want Edwin Diaz as your as he's a top closer? He's also in that range of not the top three, four, but he gets a whole bunch of strikeouts. Do you want to pay that market premium, or do you want to just pay for the actual saves, which you can get later in the round, later and later in the draft? As for starting pitchers, if you really want that starting pitcher, you want that one ace, you want to pay up for it. That's perfectly fine. You have to pay that market premium, otherwise you will be locked out of it. You're not going to get any of them. Is it worth it? Well, we talked about it before on the podcast. On this podcast, one out of two of the top pitchers sometimes don't hit. So, do you want to take that risk? If you want to, then by all means. I mean, do you want to safe Garrett Cole? How do you know Garrett Cole is going to be safe this year? He's been safe the last couple of years. Uh, Max Scherzer, he's been safe. How do you know this is not the year that he starts his decline? So, you, do you really want to pay that market premium, that extra two, three dollars on on a pitcher when you can get a cheaper pitcher in mid draft? So I think there's a bunch of things that go into the decision as to whether something is too ridiculous and the market premium is insane. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, as you said, Jenny, you know, you, you, you need the saves, you need the steals. It's a roto category. You know, you can't go to zero. Whereas you don't have to buy your Mercedes. That's a luxury item. This is sort of an inelastic item here, economics-wise. You need milk. You need meat. So if the prices go up, you have to pay. You need saves. So... If everyone's paying a cost up, you, you can pay it. I mean, we always preach in the show that it's okay to pay a market premium, just pay less of a market premium than anybody else, and this way you're gaining a relative bargain compared to the market. But, you know, think of it like this. You know, if, if it, it depends on the difference between Hendricks and Hayter at the top and how bad, you know, what what is the value difference between them and whoever you're going to get later on? There's the risk difference, right? You're paying up more because there's a lower risk. They're the guys. You know, they're getting the saves. You don't know if Camilo Duvall is going to be handed saves. You don't know um, if the Pirates are going to get any saves this year, right? You're paying for less uncertainty, and that has a value. I think what also is important, it depends on the waiver market. If there are available saves all the time on the waiver market and they're cheap, then you don't have to pay that difference. I don't need to pay a ridiculous price for the closers because they're available on the waiver wire. If you're in a 15-team league and there's really a barren waiver wire, then it's a good idea to pay up or the value is more, right? It, the value of, of, of a player is also what you can replace them with on the waiver wire. If they can't be replaced all the more reason why you have to pay up. If you're in a more shallow league, you have a much better chance of getting somebody on the waiver wire. You do not have to pay a ridiculous price for the top. So I would say it's not worth it. I really think it matters each year. To me, I, don't, I, I think that a second-round Hendricks is probably too much. I think that the that difference in price to somebody who's the 10th best closer probably is not worth a second-round pick. But it's probably higher than it is in most years, and I think directionally the NFBC is right. Same thing with steals. You can make the same risk argument. Are there steals available on the waiver wire? Probably not that much. Are there steals available quality players later in the draft? Probably not. Uh, steals are very hard to come by these days. I think the most efficient way in steals are getting those combo players on top, getting Bichette, Kyle Tucker, um, even Starling Marte. They're probably not that much going more than what their inherent value is, but getting a Jazz Chisholm even five rounds later pushed up just because you need the steals, that guy ain't that good. I wouldn't get guys pushed up at that level. So you got to make the risk assessment and say, 
wait a minute, are these guys' intrinsic value worth it? Is there a guy at the bottom I can get that's going to be easy to get, right? I, I think that you have to evaluate your player pool each week, and the NFBC, I think, is doing a decent job. For me, I think the top two going in the second, third round is a little bit too much for me, but I do like the stability of a Rysel Iglesias in the fourth, maybe fifth. If you can get a, a Class A, a Diaz, one of those stable guys, pretty much what you said about playing in that second top tier, Jenny. Uh, I think I like to live in that one as well. Yeah, yeah, there's, it's worked out well for me. Um, this past year in the in the main event, I ended up with Ryan Presley, and then I hit later on on a Will Smith, and that pretty much set me up for the for the entire season. And then you know I try I still try to be active in the closer market and in case something happens to one of my guys because of course Will Smith was his job was threatened all year, so I stayed active. But you know having that sort of second tier guy um, ended up being really valuable. So um, we'll talk a little bit about roster construction here. And um, I know you wrote a very nice article that I, I read in the FTN Fantasy Guide. Uh, Greg Jewett, friend of the podcast, uh, he's been on our show as well. He asked specifically to you, hey, what position do you, Jenny, find uh, production in later rounds when plotting your roadways? And, you know, in, in general, maybe you can, you know, tell us what is your general tenet of how you build a roster in general. Yeah, so um, some of the stuff that I went over in the draft guide, because the article that I wrote was on roster construction and sort of the process that I go through, um, I tend to, I look at the uh, projections first, you know, I, I, and one thing actually I wanted to throw in there that I didn't mention in the draft guide is that if you feel that you need to adjust projections, you know, everybody has, you know, you should always try to personalize them. I mean, this is, this is a game that we're playing and it's meant to be fun and we like doing our own analysis, so... If you are looking at projections and you think that a player is uh, not properly valued, the way to do it is not to just bump them up in your rankings, just an arbitrary amount based on your gut feeling. The way to do it is to either adjust the base skill level of that player or adjust their playing time. So the way that I do it is to take the projections um, for each uh, scoring category and divide them by plate appearances. So then I have a rate statistic for each uh, category. And then I put it in my spreadsheet that way. So then if I, you know, look at, you know, George Springer, for instance, and see that he's projected for 649 plate appearances or whatever it is, it's some crazy amount this year in steamer that you know if i bump him down to 500 it just automatically recalculates his full projection and it recalculates his sgp and that way i'm not just making an arbitrary adjustment on his ranking but um once that's done you know i i just i look at two um, aspects of building a roster one is looking at it by position so I look from top to bottom across the position and sort of look at where the pockets of value are. So, you know, for shortstop, there's obviously a lot of great shortstops at the top, but, you know, I, I want to have a lot of um, options. So if I don't get one of the top shortstops, where am I going to fall back to as my second option? And where are the late guys that I might want to take as a middle or corner infielder? And how, you know, I, how does that map out against every other position? So it might be great to say, I like um, a this late shortstop and I like this late second baseman. But if you like, you know, I like this late uh, starting pitcher and this late reliever, but they might all be going at the same time. So you need to sort of prioritize and think about, you know, well, I really, the best value here really is the relief pitcher. So maybe I bump up the quality of, 
shortstop that I draft in order to make it all sort of the puzzle sort of work. And you need to essentially do the same thing with categories. So I tend to start sort of at the bottom of the draft and look at what are the categories that are available to me late and what positions do those players play at and then work backwards towards the beginning of the draft. And then you're sort of left with what are the things that I need to get early that I can't get later? Right. It, it, it is a puzzle. It's it's uh, the game is knowing when to take who. A little bit yeah, different. So that's in part of it. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's part of the fun part of the game. I play mostly in auctions, and it's it's a different game. It could be a harder game to some extent, but it does not have that game element of you know you got to take a guy now because you don't know if a guy is going to be there later. So that that is a big thing. And you know, question for you: Do do you um, deep dive most of the players in the player pool, or do you, or I should say, in addition, do, do you create like a uh, I'm only going to draft from from a certain player, uh, number of players, or uh, do you create do not draft lists? Like, how does that work for you in terms of touchable players and players that you're willing to draft? I don't. I try to get as deep into the player pool as I can in the time that I have. Um, you know, I it'd be great to go, you know, seven, eight hundred players deep, but I try to at least get through a good five or six hundred. And I don't do. I spend a lot of years um, spending my time trying to do like a full deep dive, opening up the Fangraphs page and the Savant page on every player and sort of looking for you know hidden nuggets and things like that. And it just was not a good waste of you know good use of my time. It was a waste of my time. So, but I do look at every player in relation to the other players going around them and try to look at it that way and, and use the tools that I have. You know, the projections are there for a reason, the, the calculations are there for a reason. So I sort of take more of a broad approach to it and looking at the player pool as a whole. But I end up really not making a do not draft list. There's a few people that I know based on their ADP, I will most likely not draft um, like Noah Syndergaard. I think I will be very unlikely to draft this year, but I won't say never and I won't take him off my list. You know, some players, you know, in the NFBC, Casey Cha has had great success over the years by eliminating 80% of the player pool. And it makes his decisions on draft day very simple. But for me, I want to have maximum flexibility during the draft. So like I might say, you know, I will never draft Jacob deGrom, but then there's just this one draft where it sort of works out that it, it fits my team. And, you know, that's he's probably not a good example because he's drafted so early, but some, you know, usually somewhere later, there are places where lots of different types of players can fit with the team that I've built. And I want to be able to let the draft come to me and let the value come to me and be flexible enough to adjust to what's happening. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with a lot of that there. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, you never want to say never. I mean, last year we we said a thousand times, don't draft Mondesi, but there was one league where he was considerably cheaper, and hey, why not? You know, it's it's if the value is there. Uh, I mean, what, what Ruven and I do, and by the way, I, I, I highly recommend that you deep dive with another person because you can miss a lot of things that the other person doesn't know. And, you know, uh, with Ruven, he's got a lot of the injury stuff, and he knows maybe a little bit more than me on – who's the backup guy, and is he going to get more playing time, and who's coming up the pike, and, you know, so, you know, you, you, you rely on the talents of, of your partner there to to really uh, uh, do a good job of getting all aspects, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Ruvain, but, you know, what we do is we, we don't deep dive every single player. You know, the ATC projections are the base, and where we see a player is 
a lot better or uh, uh, going for a lot lower than we think uh, that ATC says it's worth, then we'll do the deep dive to see if we agree. And if not, we would change the projection or for our own purposes and say, OK, we're, we're going to touch that down or touch that up. But, you know, we'll, but we'll look at every player and, you know, a lot of times, you know, OK, let's 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 look at this player uh, and we'll say ATC says this and Ruben will say, sure. And I'll say, sure. And we'll just move on. And we have a value. And that's what the value is. If that value comes up in our draft boards, we'll take him. And if not, not. But then there's a player where, oh, wait a minute, does that make sense, that playing time? We'll say, hold on a second. Be sure that playing time's right. Uh, maybe for our purposes, we're going to take that down a little bit. And then we make a small adjustment. And there you go from there. So, you know, for us, it's about using the base and then just making tweaks along the way and preparing. Anything to add, Ruben? Yeah, I don't think you ever have a never a do not draft list. You should never have that. However, there are some players that no matter what will have an instinct to say, you know what, I don't want him because he has a tendency to get injured. I don't want him because he has a tendency to underperform based on what he's expected to. So you never should have an undervalued, uh, or, or I'm sorry, never have a non a do not draft list because you know what, you may end up drafting them, and you know what, if it fits your team, it doesn't matter if you didn't want to draft them before. It fits your current team now, and and you can make it work. Also, when it comes to uh, setting up a plan, I think you should go into a draft with at least four or five guys in the same price level, the sweet spot, same price level, and say you know what, hot spots, and just find that right area. That's what I want. I'm okay with. Any of these guys. I may not be thrilled with this guy because he's older. I may not be thrilled with this guy because I'm nervous about playing time. But he fits the hot spot, and you go after that player. Yeah, no, exactly. If you have four similarly valued players, similar stats, similar positions, you should be— and if you're indifferent to all of them, you can say, wait a minute, I think the 15th round is a good time to take X. And it's just this person slash player B slash player C slash player D— that's how you plan it. Plan for something around that spot with that position. Um, you know, question to you, Jenny, and we talk a lot about this on our show in terms of risk. And you know, how do you how do you incorporate risk into your roster construction? And for me, I'm very technical mathematically uh, with the ATC volatility metrics. We have interprojectional standard deviation and skew, and we alter the prices. Every price is a risk-adjusted price. Um, if a certain player is, well, you know, we don't know if he's going to play all the time. He has an injury risk. Well, that'll just come out in the formula, and $2 will be taken off to incorporate that risk, that kind of thing. How do you incorporate risk into your decision-making and roster construction? This is actually an area that I am trying to get better at. You know, I feel like I can sort of spot the risk maybe, but I don't really know how to quantify it. And that's where I think the new metrics that you released with ATC have been really helpful for me in that because I oh, have but- a hard time, you know, just putting a number on it. So, um, you know, that's helped a lot. And I, you know, in the past I had, you know, just sort of a column in my spreadsheet that I, I ranked a guy from one to five, you know, on his playing time risk and his injury risk. And I sort of had that there to look at, but it didn't, it wasn't being physically subtracted from their value. So I, I like the ATC projections a lot, the new uh, metrics in them. But one thing that I've thought about a lot in this off season that I really want to try to incorporate is thinking about, you know, the round that they're being drafted and where is this a player that I am going to feel like I will be willing to drop? So, you know, an early player, if they get hurt for a couple of months, you're, you know, I had Mike Trout on my bench all year last year because you thought he was coming back and you thought he was coming back and then he never came back. But, you know, in the middle, there's sort of a gray area where, you know, I want to, I want to 
think about before I take a player that I perceive has a higher risk, am I going to be willing to drop that player? Because the thing that I really don't want to do is hang on to an injured player on my bench in a league like the NFBC where there are no IL spots. So I really want to try to minimize uh, the instances during the season of having an injured player or even an underperforming player um, on my bench. So I, I want to think a lot about that before I draft them. So um, I want to talk a little bit about power drafting. And we talked about this with uh, Ron Chandler. And uh, it came up because we're talking about Jacob deGrom. And Jacob deGrom has a huge binary risk of is he going to play or not? The health risk, is he going to play? How many innings he's going to play? Uh, before I even ask about that, uh, Jenny, St- Steamer has deGrom projected for 152 innings. Does that sound high to you, just right, or, or too low? I really don't know how to deal with DeGrom. <laughs> I mean, it. I personally probably will not draft him. And, you know, when you were talking about the power drafters, you know, I, I'm in enough leagues and I do a good amount of best ball leagues. So I, I may have a share here and there. Yeah. But for the for the most part, I'm I'm going to avoid drafting him because, like I said, if he gets hurt and he's out for a few weeks here and a few weeks there, I'm going to need to stash him on my bench. And I don't want to have to do that. So... I, I think that I'll probably stay away. He very well may well stay healthy all year, but it's the the vibe that I get from that whole situation um, is not good, and I just don't think I want to deal with it. When I don't know, I'm just going to avoid it because there are other options. There are other players that are less risky that I can take at the same time. Right. So, you know, the, the reason I brought this up with you is because, you know, you are a power drafter. You're doing a bunch of teams in the NFBC, and – you know, Ron Chandler's point, which I think is a good one, is that the reason why DeGrum's price gets propped up as much as it looks, I mean, it looks ridiculous, second round. We don't even know who's going to play at all. Um, the reason why it gets propped up is because you have power drafters in the NFBC saying, uh, you know what, I want at least one Jacob DeGrum share. I'm going to have 15 teams, so I want at least one DeGrum share because if I'm playing 10 teams in the main event, if I happen to hit on that one and he's there, well, maybe that'll be the team that'll win me the league. So I want to get one share. And, of course, if everybody who's a power drafter says, I want to get one share, that props up his price. The question is, do you agree with that? Um, and is that something that you actually try to do? You actually try to say, I want to pick up a DeGrum share? And actually, I'll even ask a further question that relates uh, is, do you – purposely diversify your portfolio and if there's a player that you like you won't take them in all your leagues you'll say i'm gonna limit it to half the leagues because i need some diversity in my portfolio yes i do try to diversify mostly at the beginning of the draft in the first you know five ten rounds just because if you take you know fernando tatis on all of your teams and he gets hurt you're going to be in a bad spot so i try to diversify the players that i have in the early part of the draft and then later on with players that are more volatile you know that you can drop easier and things like that it's easier to take some of the same guys and if you just need to cut bait then you cut bait but you know i was just thinking that as far as Degrom goes, you know, I think there are a lot of people that say, I want to wait and see how he looks in spring training. And I think that if I am going to get a share of Degrom, it's probably going to be early because if he comes back to spring training and he looks great, his price is going to go up even from where it is. And for me, him looking good in spring training is makes me no more comfortable than if, you know, 
if there was a setback because I I feel like he could go at any time. So just being able to get through spring training successfully does not make me feel that comfortable. So I think his price is probably as low as it's going to be. And if he gets hurt somehow in the lead up to spring training or in spring training and, and his price drops, then I just don't want any part of him anyway. So if I'm going to get my share, I think it's going to be early. Okay, interesting. Um, do you have a quick sleeper pick for 2022? Just to see if we can... So I haven't gotten that far yet, but what I can, what I can tell you is the way that I find sleepers... So I, I've put together my draft sheet and I've started to get through the positions, but really I've only made it through catcher so far. So I'm not I'm not too far into the player pool deep dive yet. But... The type of players that I like to use for my sleepers are guys who are undervalued compared to 2021. So in my draft spreadsheet, I have a column that has their 2021 ADP. And so I look at the guys, it just is an easy way to highlight guys who are going much, much later than they were in 2021. Sometimes it's because of injury, you know, DJ LeMahieu, Luke Voigt, Mike Moustakis, things like that. And those are a case-by-case basis. If I think that their poor performance the year before or their lack of playing time was due to injury, I might be willing to jump back in. You know, there's also guys who were a prospect who came up who um, underperformed. You know, there's Andres Jimenez. Everybody was all over Andres Jimenez, and he did not get the playing time that people thought. Alec Bohm underperformed and you know those guys you know people's opinion of those guys has severely diminished so that might be this might be a good time to to jump back in um the trouble the ones that i always have a harder time with are the guys that just had a bad year you know a eugenio suarez or christian walker and those are the guys that i'll do a little bit more of a dive into to see if i can figure out why they didn't do well and whether or not i believe they're going to rebound but for me in general, I, I tend to look at guys who I think are, whose value has um, been suppressed. You know, their, their perception of them is suppressed compared to the year before. That excellent piece of advice. Um, great stuff there from uh, Jenny Butler. Uh, we're going to do uh, a couple of player debates, and uh, we'll chat a bit more. Uh, we'll do two tonight. Uh, first one is CJ Crone or Josh Bell. Let's let Ruvane go first. It's been a little while here. Ruvain, who do you got? CJ Crone or Josh Bell for you in 2022? Yikes. CJ Crone or Josh Bell. Okay, CJ Crone has had, whenever he has 500 at-bats or more, he usually has 25 or more home runs. It's happened three times so far in Tampa, in Minnesota, and Colorado. So the fact that he's in Colorado only helps. His K rate has been about the same, about 21 to 22% over his last 1,100 at-bats, and his walk rate is around six, was around 6 for his career until 2020, and since then he's doubled that. So he's shown more plate discipline, and that's what we're looking at. And his batting average, he may not bat 280 like or close to 280 like he did. He's probably closer to 260, 265, but if he keeps his Babbitt over 300, which he did, then he will get on base. He will get that average up because last year he hit on average Average 82% of his balls that he hit were either of medium or hard hits, and that's pretty good. That's very good for someone, especially in Colorado, that looks very good, even though that lineup is kind of crappy. Um, and then you have Josh Bell. Josh Bell, we loved Josh Bell a couple of years ago, and we, and we hit on him, and he did well in the beginning of the, of the, I think it was 2019, when he went crazy and did all that wonderful stuff. But he's a Jekyll and Hyde. He's turning 30, so he, we should know what he is. 
Do we know who he is? I'm not sure. Last year, his walk rate was up, his carry rate was down, and just like a CJ Crone, if he has 550 at bats or more, that's happened four times. He's had 25 or more homers three of those times. Um, his medium to heart rate is actually higher than, than CJ Crone. It's at 87 percent from last year. The problem with him, and 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 this is with everyone, is a shift, and, and he hits into the shift, and even if he hits the ball hard, he still may be hitting it at somebody. They're both playing on teams that are not great lineups, so I happen to think that playing in Colorado gives C.J. Crowe the slight advantage. Okay. Who do you got, Jenny? This one was really hard for me because, in my mind, these guys are nearly identical. I mean, I have them valued the same. So um, if... Right now, their ADP is is the same, but if for some reason it starts to um, vary, you know, as the season as the off season goes on, I will take whoever is going later. Um, but overall, you know, I I like everything that Ruben said. I agree with all of that. Um, the only thing I would add is, you know, maybe Josh Bell is a candidate to be traded. I don't know. It could be a good thing. I mean, if he gets traded to a starting job on a better team, that could be great. Um, if he gets traded and is playing more of a platoon or a bench role, that could be a problem. So I think um, Bell is, you know, more of a volatile play, but maybe higher upside, whereas CJ Crone, I think, is probably a little bit more reliable. Good points. I, I agree with those. Um, and my answer is that it's a hot spot. It really doesn't matter, just as Jenny said, that they're both going to be similarly valued. My early ATC projections that I've come up with, have them valued pretty much within $2. 2021, they finished pretty much within $2 of value. Um, so the answer is it really doesn't matter. They're both similarly valued. Since we're talking player debates, i got to give you an answer. Um, to me, uh, Josh Bell is the guy who I think he's more bankable in stats than you think. I mean, Crone is very reliable. I think we know what we're going to get out of Crone. We're going to get that 30 homers. He plays in Colorado, so you'll get it. Um, and that's fine, but I think that Bell, I think we know what his floor is, and I think we know what his upside is, and I think that um, it stems upwards from Crone. I think that, that he actually does have that. I mean, that 2019 year was amazing, um, and I've actually seen a trend from that year to now that's actually been up. His contact rate this past year was 82%. It's been up from 73% in 2020, which is close to the 2019 levels. That looks good. The barrel rate, his best rate was was last year. Homer to fly ball rate, his best rate was last year, 26%. The fly ball rate was was uh the fly ball rate was an issue last year. It was much higher in 2019 where he hit the homers. Maybe that's what he has to correct. So, I think the 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 ability is there, but Everything isn't put together with with Bell, and I think he has the chance to. Um, if 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 he has it all together, it's upside of 2019. Um, and I think what he has now is bankable. He's got a great walk rate, um, good contact skills. So I think there's a very good floor, and I think the upside is there. So if I had to pick one, it's Bell. Uh, but they're really similar. I I do like Crone. I like both of them actually at this level, and um, you can put them in as a hot spot. All right, before we go to the next one, we have this week's Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. So this, the trivia this week is going to be related to the question, to the two players we're going to bring up next. 
So I, I and Jenny, you know who the next two players are. Ariel, you know who the next two players are. So I'll give away one of the answers. But since 2017, ten players have finished in the top five MVP pod, MVP voting for their respective leagues more than once. Who are they? Two players. Say that again. Two players have finished. Ten players. Ten, ten players have finished in the top five of the MVP voting in their respective leagues more than once since 2017. Who are they? All ten. All ten. If you can get and 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 there's a reason why I want them. All right, we'll go back and forth. You go first, Jenny. Well, I'm gonna go Mike Trout first because that one. Trout easy. is number one. He had four. He has four top five MVP finishes. I'm gonna go uh, Freddie Freeman. Freddie Freeman has two. Oh, point. okay. Freddie Freeman has two. Strike one for me. Uh, no, no, no. It's no. He's in. He's up there. He's oh, up oh, there. oh, oh, there's two. Okay. He's he's one of them. He's two. All right. He's good. <laughs> no strike. Uh, no, Bryce you're Harper? good. No strikes yet. Bryce Harper is not there. Oh, strike. Jose Abreu. Jose Abreu is not there. Only once. Okay. Jose Altuve. Only once. Oh, I should be better. I should. Jacob Degrom. Once. Oh, uh, hmm. we're we're good at getting people who have done it once. Um, I know Mookie Betts. Only once, believe it or not. Wow. All right, give us the answer, Ruby. <laughs> okay, so the answer we got: Mike Trout. He was number one with four appearances. Jose Ramirez with three appearances, uh... and the rest of them had two: Aaron Judge, Nolan Arenado. Um, uh, uh, Bregman, Alex Bregman, Kristen Yelich, Freddie Freeman, you mentioned, Fernando Tatis Jr. has two already. Oh, wow. Juan Soto and DJ LeMayhew. And he's one of the guys we're going to be talking about now between DJ LeMayhew and Ty France. DJ LeMayhew, or Le Machine, like the Yankee fans like to call him, he's had over 600 at bats five of the last seven years. And since coming to the Yankees, listen to this, he's had a 307 average, which is higher than the average he had in his career in Colorado. He's had 46 home runs in three years. That's three less than he had in seven years in Colorado. His OBP and slugging have been higher in New York than in Colorado. You're not going to get the stolen bases out of him, but you are getting these the great eligibility of first, second, and third. So that's why he's a great value at where he is and why I think he's better than Ty France. Ty France had a breakout year last year. 18 homers, 73 RBIs, 291 average. He's seven years younger than DJ LeMahieu, and he's eligible at first and second and may get more at-bats at third now that Kyle Seeger has, uh, has retired. And this is a, a quirky stat. Ty France actually led the majors last year with 27 hit-by-pitches, tied with Mark Hanna. But in general, they're basically close in value in, uh, when it comes to drafting, but DJ LeMahieu, to me, is a much better value overall. LeMay was also going about 20 picks before France, so the market's seeing that he's a bit better. Um, and early ATC projections have about a $5 difference in 15-team 5 by 5 Roto. What do you think, Jenny? Are they closer than we think? I do think they're close, and I, but I, I lean towards LeMahieu. All of, all of what Ravane just said just made, my, <laughs> made me feel a lot better about my pick. But, um, yeah, I think that... I, like I said before, I like to take players that are sort of on a on the downswing of their value rather than guys who are coming off their best year. So that's the basis for why I think LeMahieu. I've I've been a LeMahieu fan um, since early on, so I've always been a supporter of him. And I think that 
He is um, a very consistent bet to have a good batting average, which is a category that can be very hard to fill. Um, he's also um, at third base. He has third base eligibility, which can be hard to fill. It's a good point about Ty France getting some third base at bats. I hadn't thought about that, but um, DJ LeMahieu already has it, so I think that uh, I'm going to go with him. Yeah, I mean, DJ LeMahieu, um, yes, he had a down year last year, but I think that the 2019-2020 numbers are absurdly good. His homer to fly ball rate of 25%, I mean, that's just silly ridiculous for, for the type of player he is. And, you know, remember in 2020, the short season, he played a lot of good games in AL East and NL East ballparks that have better park factors than than normal. So I, I think that I believe 10 homers is more what he's going to get than 20. Whereas Ty France, I think that his power looks more sustainable, and we're talking about 20 homers. Um, to me, it's more of a category issue. Um, the batting average probably plays more than the homer. Di the difference in homers, the difference in batting average plays more. Uh, but, you know, it really depends on what you're looking for your roster. In a vacuum, it's DJ LeMahieu. But uh, I think they're somewhat interchangeable. So that I think I might take the two-round difference to get France later uh, instead of DJ. But DJ LeMahieu can, just like my trivia question uh, shows, he can be MVP caliber. And if you can get a DJ LeMahieu at the, at the level he's at now, and he ends up in the top five of MVP, which is not out of the realm of possibility, then that's a great get. You know who, you know who the profile of France actually reminds me of? It reminds me of Eric Hosmer, where you're going to get these 20 homers, you're going to get... A good run production, like we're talking about like 80 runs, 75 RBIs. So, you know, decent level um, run production. And the batting average can fluctuate between between like like 280, 260 to 280. Um, France had, had an 84% contact rate last year, and that's really what he did in the minors. So I think the batting average actually is more stable than you think. Um, so I, I, I think that France, it depends on, on what kind of discount you're going to get, but I actually, I think I, I might like the discount compared to the value. I actually might like France better than LeMahieu, but in a vacuum, it's LeMahieu, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, we want to move on and, uh, we usually don't do this type of thing here. Uh, but I want to actually talk about um, our favorite podcasts. And we're talking a lot about – we're giving people tools for what they can use um, to help them in, in 2022. And, um, you know, besides reading articles and stuff, I listen to a lot of baseball podcasts. I find them very interesting, enjoying, enjoyable, uh, entertaining, and a lot of them very helpful. Uh, some with good advice, some with – it gets you to think well. And I thought um, even though, you know, we – I. Hey, uh, nobody's paying me to advertise on behalf of other podcasts, but I thought we could go through a couple that we each listen to and just uh, mention a couple of them and what we like about them, and uh, maybe that could help the listeners uh, um, you know, get even uh, uh, more information other than listening to our very excellent Beat the Shift podcast here, which everyone should listen to seven times and download 25 times to prop up our numbers. Uh, so Let's start with Jenny. Maybe uh, it's a podcast or two that you like, and we'll go around the room and uh, list out a bunch of them for, for our listeners. Sure. This is going to be a hard one for me because I went through my, my feed that I keep for just fantasy baseball podcasts, and I have 18 podcasts that I listen to wow. on a regular basis. So it's wow. a lot. Wow. So I'm, I'm hoping that I don't, you know, miss any. 
But um, a couple that I really like a lot, I like the ones that in general, and your podcast is really good about this, is, you know, presenting is not not always agreeing with each other, you know, presenting two sides of a player. And um, I think that Sleeper on the Bus, which is a really popular one, does a really good job of that, you know, debating each other on different players. Um, I also like uh, Launch Angle a lot with Rob Silver and Jeff Zimmerman. And one thing that I really like about that one is that, I really like the way Rob Silver breaks down players. I like the way that he talks about players in terms of a you know percentage chance that things are happening going to happen, because I think so often you hear people talk about players in terms of absolutes. You know, I like this guy, and I'm you know, and or I don't like this guy, and we all know that there is a range of outcomes that can happen. So I like the way that Rob breaks down the um you know the the range that can happen the percentage chance that he hits the percentage chance that he busts and it helps to sort of formulate that in your head um a couple others that you know are i for me um helpful in for nfbc specifically the rotosaurus the high stakes heat um and the ftn podcast are both um very centered on uh nfbc type drafts and on leagues and um also a couple of pitcher lists has some good ones that i listen to specifically on the wire and in the deep um which are very helpful to me in season uh, when i'm looking for uh players on the waiver wire all right uh Ruvain, uh how about yours i got three of them that i want to mention first of all um i think jenny mentioned one of them sleeper in the bust already um i like the banter between um paul sporer and justin mason i think they go through the players Pretty in depth, and I and I do like that. I like the back and forth there. Um, we had Frank Stample on le- uh, last week, and the CBS. It's a daily one, and I if you really want, if you're really into it, you want to hear something every day. I, I like that. I, I really like that. And also under the radar, the Athletic with Ian Khan and um, I think DVR. Um, I love it because Ariel gets ribbed on it so often. It is just a great <laughs> listen. It is so great. The impression is just the best. <laughs> yes, I love that. Yeah, I'll mention my list, and I'm just going to go off of uh, what, what I listen to most. Uh, listen, I, I, I listen to a bunch of them. I don't want to offend anybody who does have a podcast, and I, I try to listen to as many of them as I can. I only have a certain amount of hours in the day, um, so I'm just going to list a couple that I find the most helpful. You know, you mentioned the Launch Angle podcast. I sometimes get ribbed on that, too. Um, it's true. It's true. I forgot about I that. I do. It was a couple of years ago that uh, Chris Baseball Pods guy had the uh, Baseball Pod uh, uh, contest, and I think we were like the fourth seed, the fifth seed against them, the fourth seed. And um, Rob Silver got the entire country of Can- I'm not joking about this one, the entire country of Canada to vote against us uh, to propel them and they, to. And, and they and they just beat us. And they just beat us. Th- no, no, no. They didn't just beat us. They had the entire <laughs> country of Canada. They. Yeah, He's I'm very influential sarcastic. there. I, yeah. yeah, I'm being sarcastic there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but so. Uh, uh, <laughs> Other than that, which was hilarious. Uh, no, it really is a great podcast for all the reasons you said. Uh, I mean, Jeff Zimmerman also is top-notch, and Van Lee is a, a great host, so there you go. Um, uh, I listen to CBS. Uh, I mean, that's one of the first podcasts I listen to. During the season, I find them extremely helpful. Uh, their day-to-day recaps are great, and Frank Stample is one of the best hosts out there, and everybody on the show is great also. Um, 
How about uh, Bat Flip Crazy? Uh, bench with Bubba, Toby Givon, another good NFBC player. Uh, very deep analytical podcast. Uh, I don't always listen to that one, but when I see the topics they're talking about, I always want to get their opinion on that. Uh, they're very and they, they tape they tape they tape during the day also. So sometimes I'm at work and I catch them getting, watching the live feed of it. It's actually kind of interesting to watch also. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. No, no, they're great. Uh, Sleeper in the Bust, you mentioned. I think they're the best uh, show for deep dives of players that, that's out there. Um, the There's a, so many Pitcherless podcasts. Uh, I listen to a bunch of them. The one that I wanted to say, uh, On the Wire, you mentioned, uh, with uh, Adam Howe and Kevin Hastings. We met Kevin Hastings in uh, Arizona. What a wonderful guy. Uh, he also was an old winner of TGFBI. Uh, great. Uh, you mentioned the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast, uh, the Under the Radar with Nando DeFino as well. Uh, Nando DeFino was featured in the book Fantasyland. DVR, uh, award-winning uh, podcast host. And, of course, Ian Khan, who is a regular on our show here. Uh, it's a very, very entertaining show. Probably the most similar show to the old Matthew Berry Fantasy Focus Baseball podcast. Uh, they, they do have... The, the, where they give you the information is the really the under-the-radar players, guys low down. You don't get the strategy up top. Um, you don't get the strategy in the middle, but you get a lot of guys guys you haven't heard of, they'll mention them. Ian's a very good dynasty player, um, so that's one reason to listen. Speaking of the old Matthew Berry show, uh, I do listen to the uh, ESPN, Tristan Cockcraft and Eric Carabell. Uh, Cockcroft especially to me is just uh, so sound in his reasoning. Uh, I love it. And uh, two other shows I want to mention, Baseball HQ Radio. To me, it's the gold standard of how to do interview podcasts. Um, it's it's a very long one. It's like two hours long. Um, I don't listen to it in one shot, but they give you AL news, NL news, very deep conversations with the guests, just the best deep, deep conversation with the guests you can get. Uh, they, they have me on every year. Patrick's a good friend of mine here. Um, he's so nice in person, and you can chat with him for hours, so uh, that's worth listening to. And Rotowire. Um, I think Rotowire is the most complete daily podcast throughout the year, and they've got different looks and different takes. You got on Monday, Waiver Wire with Scott Jenstead, Deep Talks with Fred Zinke, Tuesdays, I think James Anderson with the Prospects on Wednesday. You got a rotating guest on Thursday, and then Clay Lincoln Zolda previewing the next week on Friday. Everybody there is excellent. And, of course, Jeff Erickson appears like on three or four of those shows a week uh, with the, the other host. Uh, that's a wonderful show. Uh, I, I would definitely recommend you take a look at that. Any, any, any uh, other ones to uh, – I mean, we mentioned a lot of them right here. I'm so glad that you mentioned some of the ones that I didn't get a chance to get to. I love the Rotowire show too. And one thing I was going to mention, um, if you are looking for trading advice, um, two of them, uh, the Rotowire podcast that has Fred Zinke on it, he's a great guy with trades, and also Ian Kahn on the Under the Radar podcast. If you're looking for advice about how to trade, those uh, guys are really great resources. Yeah, and Scott White is a great trader also from CBS. I didn't mention when I mentioned CBS, but – um, Scott White, it's funny, but the individual player opinions, I actually often don't agree with him, but the way he explains stuff um, and the the thought process that he has in it just gets me to think about my reasoning on why I agree or disagree with him. Uh, so I, I enjoy listening to Scott as well. All right, mailbag. Uh, let's go through uh, one or two of these questions. Uh, Metsy, Metsy, Metsy asks, oh, here's a good good one for this show. Um not sure if this is appropriate for some episode, but one, what is the hierarchy or rankings for leagues? So a lot of folks tout which leagues they've won, but I never know what that means. 
I'm not exactly sure what he's talking about, but I think he explains it further when he says, is there a way to judge how good analysts are at actual fantasy play? Maybe the NFBC rankings do that now. I think the question, Jenny, is, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, analysts uh, out there and they do stuff, but they may or may not be good fantasy baseball players in, in and of itself. And is there a good way to judge how they are? How does performing in a league affect whether you give advice or not that's good and, and you know, whether they're a good fantasy baseball player or not? Uh, what do you think of the question? Um, I think it's, it's – I'm going to sort of sidestep the question just a little bit by saying that I don't um, necessarily need an analyst to do well in their leagues. It's great if they do. NFBC rankings are great, but not all of the analysts play in NFBC – especially at the very high price points, you know, not everybody has the bankroll to do that. Um, so NFBC rankings can be good for, you know, overall player rankings, but I don't know that they're the best um, for analyst rankings. But, you know, I think that there are um, there are rankings for projections at, at Fantasy Pros. Um, but in general, you know, I like to just sort of take a little bit from different analysts. And, you know, if I listen to an analyst talk about the way that they do you know a certain piece of roster construction or a way that they look at players and then i try to employ that and it works for me then i know that makes me more likely to trust them in the future so i tend to just sort of go with a trial and error and sort of listen and pull the items that i like from each players because you know some people might be great at breaking down hitter swing mechanics and but they might not be great at roster construction or fab and that's okay that doesn't mean that they're any less valuable when they're breaking down a hitter so i it's good if you can to try and pull the strengths from each of the analysts and sort of use it for yourself i agree Ruben, anything to add yeah, I like the analysts who are able to learn from their mistakes and admit their mistakes and, and show how they're changing or evolving as a player to be able to do better. Look at Ron Chandler. He won when, the very, when he first started doing fantasy baseball. Then he had a, a pretty long drought where he didn't do that well, but he won this past year. So that means that he's he's evolving. Thanks for and it he's, in, well, well, he uh, well he did beat both of us. We were on we in the same league, but he but he did beat us, and that shows that he's he's continues to, to evolve, continues to tweak his system, and continues to find you know different ways to work the system and and make and make his system work in the confines of the current market. Another thing you could make, look at the TGFBI, what Justin Mason put together. You can get an idea if you look at. I wouldn't say look at the top five only. Look at the top fifty. You'll start to see the same names popping up almost every year in the top fifty. You want to go by that? I guess you can go by that. Yeah, I I think I agree very much with, with what Jenny said. Um, and you know, Metsy, Metsy, Metsy. The advice to you is, I don't think it really matters to have a list of the best uh, analysts who are very good uh, fantasy players. I think for the purposes of helping you, there are great analysts that do great analyst work and they know they can spot good players and they write tremendous undervalued articles. Whether they actually put that all together and know the value themselves in a real fantasy league, um, they may or may not. I, I think there's two types of, of analysts. There's the analysts that then try to play fantasy baseball and then there's the fantasy baseball players who then analyze. I mean, I, I personally see myself as somebody who I played fantasy baseball. I think I know the strategy of it. And I then said, all right, let me write about it. Um, but there are some that are excellent at writing, and they also enjoy playing the game. Maybe they're not as good as it. Um, and then there are some that are great at both. And, you know, the ones that are 
not good at anything, obviously, are uh, not worth following. But you'll know that because then then you won't be reading their work. So I think it really doesn't matter, um, you know, uh, about a ranking or, or ranking what league is more important or so. Um, that's not really that's not really important to me. The most important league is the one you're playing in, um, in in your own league, whether it's a home league or not. That's the most important league, and you know, use the information and the analysts and get what you get about doing stuff. I mean. Tout Wars is a great league for looking and see what do the experts do in a situation. Labor, what do the experts do in this situation? And there's value to gain if you watch what goes on, how they draft people, how they drop people. There's value in seeing what they do. I, I look at some of those leagues to help me in, in, in my uh, uh, leagues, in my ver uh, divisions of those leagues. Um, and looking at what people write, that's a tremendous value in the podcast we talk about. So I think I think that you can just use the information and you know do there. Here's a quick one, but I think it's a good one for for Jenny. Uh, Michael asks, when doing Z scores for determining draft rankings, um, and I'm not sure if you you do Z scores at all. It sounds like you do SGP. Um, what are the pros and cons to using average standard deviation at a positional level as opposed to the full player pool? So I do not actually use Z-scores, so I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer this as well as he might want. But um, if you're just talking about in general comparing players at each individual position versus comparing them to the whole pool, um, I do both. I, I think that you know you have to fill all the positions, so it's very important to see how eat the players at each position compare to each other. But then taking that distribution and those you know looking at how that position fits with the other positions so it is sort of an overall comparison while also for me looking at each position um, within itself if that makes sense yeah i mean i, I i'm not exactly sure what you're asking but uh, i'll give you two answers which hopefully one of them satisfies what you're asking is one by position is important is important to uh, to look but um to get the value of positions versus another position, you want to look at replacement level. That's why we know catchers have to be bumped up because, you know, when you buy a catcher, if you're buying the third best catcher, you're actually not buying the third catcher stats. You're buying the stats above the replacement level catcher. You're paying for the privilege of not having to get the crappiest catcher on the board. So in that case, you do need to look at position by position, the difference uh, the differences between positions. Um, but in terms of full player pool, another question I get often is when you calculate Z-scores, should you look at the average, what is the statistical average of just the players who are drafted? So if your league drafts 260 players, give me 260 players worth and take the top 260 and take the average standard deviation? Or do you say all 600 players in baseball take the full average of everything? The answer is you want to always take the um, at players who are going to be rosterable. Um, who cares what the standard deviation is at the very bottom? It could be great. You don't want that coming into your things. You want to based off of average draftable statistics. Uh, that is for for sure. Ruben, anything to add or this is the uh, fact question? Here. No, I I think you nailed it on the head. You're the you're the numbers guy. I go, I, I defer to you in my answers. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a I think you're asking a very technical question. So, Michael, reach out to me uh, on Twitter uh, if uh, you want any other uh, questions or if I didn't understand your question correctly. All right. Uh, injury update. And 
Before I hand it over to Ruvain, I'm actually going to ask this question over to, to Jenny. Um, I heard you on the CBS podcast talking about Acuna, and you referenced something that Ruvain said that, hey, Acuna is probably going to be ready for opening day. You should probably draft him earlier than, than you think. Maybe you're getting a discount right now while he still hasn't played a, a game. Um, and you said on the show that your dad is an orthopedist, and uh, he says no way he's going to be ready for open day. So it looks like we got a battle here between your dad and Ruben. <laughs> What's up? So I he gave me that sort of off-the-cuff answer when I asked him about it. So he doesn't know about Acuna specifically, so I'll put that out there. But what I did do, you know, I, I've, I've spent a lot of years listening to him talk about ACL injuries. And, you know, I, I think that... Um, you know, I think he's going to be, if I'm calculating it right, somewhere in the eight and a half to nine month range post injury when he comes back. And from what I understand, and I'm I'm not in a professional like Ruvain is, but um, that's really about the earliest that you want to come back. So he's sort of right there. And he may be a great healer. He may have the best training staff, although I will add that he is not working with the team currently. So we would hope that he has the best training staff uh, personally and that he's doing everything that they need him to do. But, um, you know, what my understanding is, is that, you know, nine months is about the minimum that you want to go. And for every, you know, month that you come back sooner than that, you are increasing your risk for re-injury. So that's my biggest concern is that he will come back before he is fully ready, has all of his strength and all of his mobility back, and he may start out the season slow. Even if he comes back on time, he may start slow in terms of statistics, and he may not have, you know, be at his full Acuna level. So that is my main concern, and I just don't think we're getting enough of a discount. Well, okay. (laughs) So... Um, basically, Ronald Lacuna had the surgery in July. He, we've seen videos all over the internet of him hitting a baseball on the field, in in on, in a stadium, down uh, underground, you know, in the tunnels, doing all that wonderful stuff. That's great. If he's able to run, and if we see him running, and if he's able to play the outfield, and we see that he's not being held back at all. And we see the fact that he's also able to be aggressive because he's an aggressive baseball player. He'll take that extra base. He'll try to get the extra stolen base, and that's why he's so valuable. If we see he's able to run at full speed and not baby his, quote-unquote, baby his knee at all during spring training, then he will be ready 100% to start the season. However, I'm not backtracking. I guess I'll backtrack a little bit. If you see that he's not playing the field during spring training at all, then he may not play the field. He may not steal those bases. But if there is a DH that starts in the National League, he will be in the opening day lineup as a DH, and they'll just limit his speed, and he'll be running at 80%, just like um, Aaron Boone said during last year that Giancarlo Stanton was running only at 70% or 80% because they wanted to save his legs. So they can teach him how to run that way for a little bit until he gets comfortable and gets his quote-unquote legs under him and then he'll be perfectly fine but i think the problem is is that right now people are drafting him in well you know in late first early second something like that and you could be missing on this value because when he got injured he was the number one fantasy baseball player because of stolen bases because of home runs if you don't get those stolen bases for the first month 
Okay, so you don't get those stolen bases for the first month, but he can make it up later. And once you're more than a year past, and if it's not in his mind that he's going to re-injure himself, then it's no holds barred, and he could be a number one fantasy player this year. The upside is there. There's no question about yes. that. Yeah. Are you taking him in the first round, Jenny? I am not, which means I'm not going to get him, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Unless, you know, he looks... Similar to Grom, if he looks shaky in preseason, his price might go down, but that will make me even less likely to take him. So I think the odds are probably not very good. Yeah, it's very different than DeGrom. I think that the uncertainty with Acuna is when he gets back full. Because, I mean, this he's already had the surgery and he's already on track. And, you know, this is a very high percentage chance of coming back to complete normal. It's just a question of exact time. And... His greatness could be backloaded in the end of the season, but it'll be there. The playing time will be there, you know. Um, and uh, sorry to say this, but because of the uncertainty of when the season will start, for that actually adds to his value, doesn't it? It's true. Yeah, it's true. Right. The the later yes, the later the season starts, yeah. the greater the possibility that he'll be at full strength when it comes to the season beginning. Yes. If I could tell you right now, Jenny, that uh, that the season is going to start May 1st because the, it's going to take a month later, would that put him in the first round for you? Yes, probably. I think I would right. feel a lot more comfortable with that. Okay, so uh, there's enough uncertainty around that that uh, there could be a case. I mean, you want to draft somebody in the first round that's going to have a very high percentage chance of returning most of his value. He's probably— uh, probably going to return it um maybe stolen bases in the first month will take a hit but uh there's a very good argument to say that he's a first rounder for all those reasons again the the risk is the it's like an opposite risk it's when is he coming back not is he going to hold up it's just a question of timing for him which which is the best risk you can get to be honest all right rest of the uh injury update moving Okay, I'll give you two more players for now because it's very hard to get information, so I want to try to spread this out as much as I can. Tommy Lestella, he's, he actually had Achilles surgery in October. He suffered an injury late in the regular season, but was able to play in the playoffs. Usually the recovery time for that procedure is about four months. That means he won't be at full strength when spring training starts. So it is possible that he'll be back like mid-April, um, early May. So if you want someone for your bench, he may be someone you want to think about. And another guy I want to mention is Kyle Farmer. He played through a hernia, a sports hernia, during the second half of the season. He actually sat out the last couple of games of the season because of it. He did not have surgery. They didn't think he needed surgery. So hopefully he'll be okay and be able to start the next season on time. All right. Well, uh, it was a great show. We touched on so many topics here. NFBC, high stakes, some player debates. We gave you some other podcasts to listen after you listen to ours 50,000 times. And please do that. Um, and, of, co of course, uh, if you haven't yet, by the way, if you haven't yet rated us and given us five stars, I, we rarely ask you on the show to do that. But uh, please do that. It definitely would it will help us. And uh, download it on every single phone and platform you can to give us more bumps. That's certainly uh, what you should spend your time on uh, rather than preparing for baseball, right? I guess so. I mean, do you listen to this show? I mean, personally, I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I don't like hearing myself. So I actually don't listen to the playback. I actually, the only time I actually did listen was when we talked about all those numbers and with, with uh, Mike Podhorzer, I had to just go back and listen to that stuff. But typically, I don't listen to my own show. Is that crazy? Uh, no. I mean, I, I listen to it because I, I edit the show and uh, uh, it's great content. Uh, 
Well, we, we think so here. Um, but, uh, no, it, it, you should all listen to the show. Uh, I mean, Ruvain, you, you're on the show, so you don't have to listen back. But uh, everyone else, please download and listen. Uh, but thanks again. Uh, Jenny Butler, a fantastic player. And as you saw, she eloquently puts her points on the show here. Uh, and we, we, I agree with quite a bit of what you say here. I mean, uh, you know what you're doing, and uh, it shows. So thank you very much, Jenny, for coming to the show. And if you can, uh, you know, tell us where we can find you on Twitter and promote anything you like to promote. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was fun. I will I will download and listen twice for Ruvane, just to nice. cover. Thank so, you so much. <laughs> thank you. Um, I am on Twitter at Jenny Butler eight three zero, and uh, the writing I've finally put out my first uh, fantasy article in the FTN Five Tool Fantasy Draft Guide. So be sure to get that. Besides me, there are a bunch of really great um, articles in there. You know, Phil Dussault and Maddie Wood, and you know, just some really great. Um, Matthew Davis and you know Vlad puts it out it's just a really great group of people so I highly recommend it yep Jenny is definitely uh, somebody who knows how to play fantasy baseball who looks like getting to a little bit of writing here so uh, kudos to you for doing that um, all right Ruvain how about you promote your stuff you can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out injury updates as they come. It's They're hard to come by right now, but as they come, I'm sending them out. Also, I have a weekly in-season article on Rotoballer discussing all the injuries I tweet about, as well as others. And I'm Ariel Cohen. You can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast every single week. My Twitter handle is ATCNY. I wrote over at Fangraphs, Rotographs, Sportsline occasionally, and Rotoballer, the ATC Projections should be up in about a week and probably before the next podcast comes out. That Cross our fingers there. Uh, if there's a holdup, it's not on my end. It's, of course, uh, the ATC. I have to wait for a bunch of other projection systems. Once enough hit that I think is credible, boom, it goes straight up. Uh, so uh, cross our fingers. Hopefully it'll be out next week. Uh, and uh, then we can all enjoy and dive into those numbers that uh, a number of you are uh, eagerly awaiting as you've Ask me when it's coming out, so that's your answer. All right, once again, thank you so much to Jenny Butler for coming on the show and from all of us here at the Beat the Ship podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.